Chapter 19, Part 2 of 2 of Herndon's Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Don Bracci. Herndon's Lincoln by William H. Herndon and Jesse William Waite. Section 32. The election resulted in an overwhelming victory for Lincoln. He received a majority of over 400,000 in the popular vote a larger majority than had ever been received by any other president up to that time. He carried not only Indiana, but all the New England states, New York, Pennsylvania, all the western states, West Virginia, Tennessee, Louisiana, Arkansas, and the newly admitted state of Nevada. McClellan carried but three states, New Jersey, Delaware, and Kentucky. The result, as Grant so aptly expressed it in his telegram of congratulation, was a victory worth more to the country than a battle won. A second time Lincoln stood in front of the great capital to take the oath of office administered by his former rival, Salmon P. Chase, whom he himself had appointed to succeed the deceased Roger B. Taney. The problem of the war was now fast working its own solution. The cruel stain of slavery had been effaced from the national escutcheon, and the rosy morn of peace began to dawn behind the breaking clouds of the great storm. Lincoln, firm but kind, in his inaugural address, bade his misguided brethren of the South come back, with a fraternal affection characteristic of the man, and strictly in keeping with his former utterances. He asked for the return of peace, with malice towards none, and charity for all. He implored his fellow countrymen, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphans, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. With the coming of spring, the great armies, awakening from their long winter sleep, began preparations for the closing campaign. Sherman had already made that grandest march of modern times, from the mountains of Tennessee, through Georgia, to the sea, while Grant, with stolid indifference to public criticism and newspaper abuse, was creeping steadily on through swamp and ravine to Richmond. Thomas had defeated Hood in Tennessee, sending the latter back with his army demoralized, cut in pieces, and ruined. The young and daring Sheridan had driven early out of the Shenandoah Valley after a series of brilliant engagements. The Kearsars had sunk the Alabama in foreign waters. Farragut had captured Mobile and the Union forces held undisputed possession of the West and the Mississippi Valley, from the lakes to the Gulf. Meanwhile, Sherman, undaunted by the perils of a further march through the enemy's country, returning from the sea, was aiming for Richmond, where Grant, with bulldog tenacity, held Lee firmly in his grasp. Ere long the latter, with his shattered army reduced to half its original numbers, evacuated Richmond with Grant in close pursuit. A few days later, the boys in blue overtook those in gray at Appomattox Courthouse, and there, under the warm rays of an April sun, the life was at last squeezed out of the once proud but now prostrate Confederacy. The sun of peace had fairly risen. The incubus of war that had pressed upon the nation's heart for four long, weary years was lifted and the nation sprang to its feet with all possible demonstrations of joyous exultation. Mr. Lincoln himself had gone to the scene of hostilities in Virginia, 
he watched the various military maneuvers and operations which involved momentous consequences to the country he witnessed some of the bloody engagements participated in by the army of the potomac within a day after its surrender he followed the victorious union army into the city of richmond in this unfortunate city once the proud capital of virginia now smoking and in ruin he beheld the real horrors of grim war here too he realized in a bountiful measure the earnest gratitude of the colored people who everywhere crowded around him and with cries of intense exultation greeted him as their deliverer he now returned to washington not like napoleon fleeing sorrowfully from waterloo bearing the tidings of his own defeat but with joy proclaiming the era of union victory and peace among men the war was over the great rebellion which for four long years had been assailing the nation's life was quelled richmond the rebel capital was taken lee's army had surrendered and the flag of the union was floating in reassured supremacy over the whole of the national domain friday the fourteenth of april the anniversary of the surrender of fort sumter in eighteen sixty one by major anderson to the rebel forces had been designated by the government as the day on which the same officer should again raise the american flag upon the fort in the presence of an assembled multitude and with ceremonies befitting so auspicious an occasion the whole land rejoiced at the return of peace and the prospect of renewed prosperity to the country president lincoln shared this common joy but with a deep intensity of feeling which no other man in the whole land could ever know he saw the full fruition of the great work which had rested so heavily on his hands and heart for four years past he saw the great task as momentous as had ever fallen to the lot of man which he had approached with such unfeigned diffidence nearly at an end the agonies of war had passed away he had won the imperishable renown which is the reward of those who save their country and he could devote himself now to the welcome task of healing the wounds which war had made and consolidating by a wise and magnanimous policy the severed sections of our common union his heart was full of the generous sentiments which these circumstances were so well calculated to inspire he was cheerful and hopeful of the success of his broad plans for the treatment of the conquered people of the south with all the warmth of his loving nature after the four years of storm through which he had been compelled to pass he viewed the peaceful sky on which the opening of his second term had dawned his mind was free from forebodings and filled only with thoughts of kindness and of future peace but alas for the vanity of human confidence the demon of assassination lurked near in the midst of the general rejoicing at the return of peace mr lincoln was stricken down by the assassin john wilkes booth in ford's theater at washington the story of his death though oft repeated is the saddest and most impressive page in american history i cannot well forbear reproducing its painful and tragic details here mr lincoln for years had a presentiment that he would reach a high place and then be stricken down in some tragic way he took no precautions to keep out of the way of danger. So many threats had been made against him that his friends were alarmed, and frequently urged him not to go out unattended. To all their entreaties he had the same answer, 
If they kill me, the next man will be just as bad for them. In a country like this, where our habits are simple, and must be, assassination is always possible, and will come if they are determined upon it. Whatever premonition of his tragic fate he may have had, there is nothing to prove that he felt the nearness of the awful hour. Doomed men rise and go about their daily duties as unoppressed, often, as those whose paths know no shadow. On that never-to-be-forgotten 14th of April, President Lincoln passed the day in the usual manner. In the morning his son, Captain Robert Lincoln, breakfasted with him. The young man had just returned from the capitulation of Lee, and he described in detail all the circumstances of that momentous episode of the close of the war, to which the president listened with the closest interest. After breakfast, the president spent an hour with Speaker Colfax, talking about his future policy, about to be submitted to his cabinet. At eleven o'clock, he met the cabinet. General Grant was present. He spent the afternoon with Governor Oglesby. Senator Yates, and other friends from Illinois. He was invited by the manager of Ford's Theater in Washington to attend in the evening a performance of the play Our American Cousin, with Laura Keene as the leading lady. This play, now so well known to all playgoers, in which the late Southern afterward made fortune and fame, was then comparatively unheralded. Lincoln was fond of the drama, brought up in a provincial way, in the days when theaters were unknown outside of the larger cities, the beautiful art of the actor was fresh and delightful to him. He loved Shakespeare and never lost an opportunity of seeing his characters rendered by the masters of dramatic art. But on that evening, it is said, he was not eager to go. The play was new, consequently not alluring to him. But he yielded to the wishes of Mrs. Lincoln and went. They took with them Miss Harris and Major Rathbone, daughter and stepson of Senator Harris of New York. The theater was crowded. At 9.20, the president and his party entered. The audience rose and cheered enthusiastically as they passed to the state box reserved for them. Little did anyone present dream that within the hour, enthusiasm would give place to shrieks of horror. It was 10 o'clock when Booth came upon the scene to enact the last and greatest tragedy of the war. He had planned carefully, but not correctly. A good horse awaited him at the rear of the theater, on which he intended to ride into friendly shelter among the hills of Maryland. He made his way to the president's box, a double one in the second tier, at the left of the stage. The separating partition had been removed, and both boxes thrown into one. Booth entered the theater nonchalantly, glanced at the stage with apparent interest, then slowly worked his way around into the outer passage leading toward the box occupied by the president. At the end of an inner passage leading to the box door, one of the president's messengers was stationed to prevent unwelcome intrusions. Booth presented a card to him stating that Mr. Lincoln had asked for him and was permitted to pass. After gaining an entrance and closing the hall door, he took a piece of board prepared for the occasion and placed one end of it in an indentation in the wall, about four feet from the floor, and the other against the molding of the door panel a few inches higher, making it impossible for any one to enter from without. The box had two doors. He bored a gimlet hole in the panel of one, reaming it out with his knife so as to leave it a little larger than a buckshot on the inside, while on the other side it was big enough to give his eye a wide range. 
both doors had spring locks to secure against their being locked he had loosened the screws with which the bolts were fastened so deliberately had he planned that the very seats in the box had been arranged to suit his purpose by an accomplice one spangler an attache of the theatre the president sat in the left-hand corner of the box nearest the audience in an easy armchair next him on the right sat mrs lincoln a little distance to the right of both miss harris was seated with major rathbone at her left and a little in the rear of mrs lincoln who intent on the play was leaning forward with one hand resting on her husband's knee the president was leaning upon one hand and with the other was toying with a portion of the drapery his face was partially turned to the audience and wore a pleasant smile the assassin swiftly entered the box through the door at the right and the next instant fired the ball entered just behind the president's left ear and then though not producing instantaneous death completely obliterated all consciousness major rathbone heard the report and in an instant later saw the murderer about six feet from the president and grappled with him but his grasp was shaken off booth dropped his pistol and drew a long thin deadly looking knife with which he wounded the major then touching his left hand to the railing of the box he vaulted over to the stage eight or nine feet below in that descent an unlooked-for and curious thing happened which foiled all the plans of the assassin and was the means of bringing him to bay at last lincoln's box was draped with the american flag and booth in jumping caught his spur in its folds tearing it down and spraining his ankle he crouched as he fell falling upon one knee but soon straightened himself and stalked theatrically across the stage brandishing his knife and shouting the state motto of virginia seek semper tyrannis afterward adding the south is avenged he made his exit on the opposite side of the stage passing miss keene as he went out a man named stewart a tall lawyer of washington was the only person with presence of mind enough to spring upon the stage and follow him and he was too late it had all been done so quickly and dramatically that many in the audience were dazed and could not understand that anything not a part of the play had happened when at last the awful truth was known to them there ensued a scene the like of which was never known in a theatre before women shrieked sobbed and fainted men cursed and raved or were dumb with horror and amazement miss keene stepped to the front and begged the frightened and dismayed audience to be calm then she entered the president's box with water and stimulants medical aid was summoned and came with flying feet but came too late the murderer's bullet had done its wicked work well the president hardly stirred in his chair and never spoke or showed any signs of consciousness again they carried him immediately to the house of mr peterson opposite the theatre and there at seven twenty two the next morning the fifteenth of april he died the night of lincoln's assassination was a memorable one in washington secretary seward was attacked and wounded while laying in bed with a broken arm the murder of the president put the authorities on their guard against a wide-reaching conspiracy and threw the public into a state of terror the awful event was felt even by those who knew not of it horsemen clattered through the silent streets of washington spreading the sad tidings and the telegraph wires carried the terrible story elsewhere the nation awakened from its dream of peace on the fifteenth of april eighteen sixty five to learn that its protector leader 
friend and restorer had been laid low by a stage-mad avenger. W. O. Stoddard, in his Life of Lincoln, says, It was as if there had been a death in every house throughout the land. By both North and South alike, the awful news was received with a shudder and a momentary spasm of unbelief. Then followed one of the most remarkable spectacles in the history of the human race, for there is nothing else at all like it on record. Bells had told before at the death of a loved ruler, but never did all bells toll so mournfully as they did that day. Business ceased. Men came together in public meetings, as if by a common impulse, and party lines and sectional hatreds seemed to be obliterated. The assassination took place on Friday evening, and on the following Sunday funeral services were held in all the churches in the land, and every church was draped in mourning. The death of Mr. Lincoln was an indescribable shock to his fellow countrymen. The exultation of victory over the final and successful triumph of the Union. The exultation of victory over the final and successful triumph of Union arms was suddenly changed to the lamentations of grief. In every household throughout the length and breadth of the land, there was a dull and bitter agony as the telegraph bore tidings of the awful deed. The public heart, filled with joy over the news from Appomattox, now sank low with a sacred terror as the sad tidings from the capital came in. In the great cities of the land, all businesses instantly ceased. Flags drooped half-mast from every winged messenger of the sea, from every church spire, and from every public building. Thousands upon thousands, drawn by a common feeling, crowded around every place of public resort, and listened eagerly to whatever any public speaker chose to say. Men met in the streets and pressed each other's hands in silence, and burst into tears. The whole nation, which the previous day had been jubilant and hopeful, was precipitated into the depths of a profound and tender woe. It was a memorable spectacle to the world. A whole nation plunged into heartfelt grief and the deepest sorrow. The body of the dead president, having been embalmed, was removed from the house in which the death occurred to the White House, and there appropriate funeral services were held. After the transfer of the remains to the Capitol, where the body was exposed to view in the rotunda for a day, preparations were made for the journey to the home of the deceased in Illinois. On the following day, April 21, the funeral train left Washington amid the silent grief of the thousands who had gathered to witness its departure. At all the great cities along the route, stops were made and an opportunity was given the people to look on the face of the illustrious dead. The passage of this funeral train westward through country, village, and city, winding across the territory of vast states, along a track of more than 1,500 miles, was a pageant without a parallel in the history of the continent or the world. At every halt in the somber march, vast crowds such as never before had collected together, filed past the catafalque for a glimpse of the dead chieftain's face. Farmers left their farms, workmen left their shops, societies and soldiers marched in solid columns, and the great cities poured forth their population in countless masses. From Washington, the funeral train moved to Baltimore, thence to Harrisburg, Philadelphia, New York, Albany, Buffalo, Cleveland, Columbus, Indianapolis, Chicago, 
and at last to Springfield. As the funeral cortege passed through New York, it was reverently gazed upon by a mass of humanity impossible to enumerate. No ovation could be so eloquent as the spectacle of the vast population, hushed and bareheaded under the bright spring sky gazing upon his coffin. Lincoln's own words over the dead at Gettysburg came to many as the stately car went by. The world will little note, nor long remember, what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It was remembered, too, that on the 22nd of February, 1861, as he raised the American flag over Independence Hall in Philadelphia, he spoke of the sentiment in the Declaration of Independence, which gave liberty not only to this country, but, I hope, he said, to the world for all future time. But if this country cannot be saved without giving up that principle, I was about to say I would rather be assassinated upon this spot than surrender it. When he died, the veil that hid his greatness was torn aside, and the country then knew what it had possessed and lost in him. A New York paper of April 29, 1865, said, No one who personally knew him but will now feel that the deep, furrowed sadness of his face seemed to forecast his fate. The genial gentleness of his manner, his homely simplicity, the cheerful humor that never failed, are now seen to have been but the tender light that played around the rugged heights of his strong and noble nature. It is small consolation that he died at the moment of the war when he could best be spared, for no nation is ever ready for the loss of such a friend. But it is something to remember that he lived to see the slow day breaking. Like Moses, he had marched with us through the wilderness. From the height of patriotic vision, he beheld the golden fields of the future waving in peace and plenty. He beheld and blessed God, but was not to enter in. In a discourse delivered on Lincoln on the 23rd of that month, Henry Ward Beecher said, And now the martyr is moving in triumphal march, mightier than when alive. The nation rises up at every stage of his coming. Cities and states are his pallbearers, and the cannon speaks the hours with solemn progression. Dead, 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 he yet speaketh. Is Washington dead? Is Hampton dead? Is any man that was ever fit to live dead? Disenthralled of flesh, risen to the unobstructed sphere where passion never comes, he begins his illimitable work. His life is now grafted upon the infinite, and he will be fruitful as no earthly life can be. Pass on, thou that hast overcome. Ye people, behold the martyr whose blood, as so many articulate words, pleads for fidelity, for law, for liberty. The funeral train reached Springfield on the 3rd of May. The casket was borne to the State House and placed in Representative Hall the very chamber in which in 1854 the deceased had pronounced that fearful invective against the sin of human slavery. The doors were thrown open, the coffin lid was removed, and we who had known the illustrious dead in other days, and before the nation lay its claim upon him, moved sadly through and looked for the last time on the silent, upturned face of our departed friend. All day long and through the night, a stream of people filed reverently by the catafalque. Some of them were his colleagues at the bar, some his old friends from New Salem, 
some crippled soldiers fresh from the battlefields of the war, and some were little children who, scarce realizing the impressiveness of the scene, were destined to live and tell their children yet to be born the sad story of Lincoln's death. At ten o'clock in the morning of the second day, as a choir of two hundred and fifty voices sang Peace Troubled Soul, the lid of the casket was shut down forever. The remains were borne outside and placed in a hearse, which moved at the head of a procession in charge of General Joseph Hooker to Oak Ridge Cemetery. There Bishop Matthew Simpson delivered an eloquent and impressive funeral oration, and Reverend Dr. Gurley of Washington offered up the closing prayer. While the choir chanted, Unveil thy bosom, faithful tomb, the vault door opened and received to its final rest all that was mortal of Abraham Lincoln. It was soon known that the murder of Lincoln was one result of a conspiracy which had for its victims Secretary Seward and probably Vice President Johnson, Secretary Stanton, General Grant, and perhaps others. Booth had left a card for Mr. Johnson the day before possibly with the intention of killing him. Mr. Seward received wounds from which he soon recovered. Grant, who was to have accompanied Lincoln to the theater on the night of the assassination, and did not, escaped unassailed. The general conspiracy was poorly planned and lamely executed. It involved about twenty-five persons. Mrs. Surratt, David C. Harold, Louis Payne, Edward Spangler, Michael O'Laughlin, J. W. Atzerott, Samuel Arnold, and Dr. Samuel Mudd, who set Booth's leg, which was dislocated by the fall from the stage box, were among the number captured and tried. After the assassination, Booth escaped unmolested from the theater, mounted his horse, and rode away, accompanied by Harold, into Maryland. Cavalrymen scoured the country, and eleven days after the shooting discovered them in a barn on Garrett's farm near Port Royal on the Rappahannock. The soldiers surrounded the barn and demanded a surrender. After the second demand, Harold surrendered, under a shower of curses from Booth, but Booth refused, declaring that he would never be taken alive. The captain of the squad then fired the barn. A correspondent thus describes the scene. The blaze lit up the recesses of the great barn till every wasp's nest and cobweb in the roof were luminous flinging streaks of red and violet across the tumbled farm gear in the corner. They tinged the beams, the upright columns, the barricades, where Clover and Timothy, piled high, held toward the hot incendiary their separate straws for the funeral pile. They bathed the murderer's retreat in a beautiful illumination, and while in bold outlines his figure stood revealed, they rose like an impenetrable wall to guard from sight the hated enemy who lit them. Behind the blaze, with his eye to a crack, Colonel Conger saw Wilkes Booth standing upright upon a crutch. At the gleam of fire, Booth dropped his crutch and carbine, and on both hands, crept up to the spot to espy the incendiary and shoot him dead. His eyes were lustrous with fever, and swelled and rolled in terrible beauty, while his teeth were fixed, and he wore the expression of one in the calmness before frenzy. In vain he peered with vengeance in his look. The blaze that made him visible concealed his enemy. A second he turned glaring at the fire, as if to leap upon it and extinguish it, but it had made such headway that he dismissed the thought. 
as calmly as upon the battlefield a veteran stands amidst the hail of ball and shell and plunging iron booth turned and pushed for the door carbine and poise and the last resolve of death which we name despair set on his high bloodless forehead just then sergeant boston corbett fired through a crevice and shot booth in the neck he was carried out of the barn and laid upon the grass and there died about four hours afterward before his misguided soul passed into the silence of death he whispered something which lieutenant baker bent down to hear tell mother i die for my country he said faintly reviving a moment later he repeated the words and added i thought i did for the best his days of hiding and fleeing from his pursuers had left him pale haggard dirty and unkempt he had cut off his mustache and cropped his hair close to his head and he and harold both wore the confederate gray uniform booth's body was taken to washington and a post-mortem examination of it held on board the monitor montauk and on the night of the twenty seventh of april it was given in charge of two men and a rowboat who it is claimed disposed of it in secrecy how none but themselves know numerous stories have been told of the final resting place of that hated dead man whoever knows the truth of it tells it not sergeant corbett who shot booth fired without orders the last instructions given by colonel baker to colonel conger and lieutenant baker were don't shoot booth but take him alive corbett was something of a fanatic and for a breach of discipline had once been court-martialed and sentenced to be shot the order however was not executed but he had been drummed out of the regiment he belonged to company l of the sixteenth new york cavalry he was english by birth but was brought up in this country and learned the trade of hat finisher while living in boston he joined the methodist episcopal church never having been baptized he was at a loss to know what name to adopt but after making it a subject of prayer he took the name of boston in honor of the place of his conversion he was ever undisciplined and erratic he is said to be living in kansas and draws a pension from the government five of the conspirators were tried and three payne harold and mrs surratt were hanged dr mudd was sent to the dry tortugas for a period of years and there did such good work among the yellow fever sufferers during an epidemic that he was pardoned and returned to his country he died only about two years ago at his home in maryland near washington adzerat was sent to the dry tortugas also and died there years ago john surratt fled to italy and there entered the papal guards he was discovered by Archbishop Hughes, and by the courtesy of the Italian government, though the extradition laws did not cover his case, was delivered over to the United States for trial. At his first trial, the jury hung. At the second, in which Edwards Pierpont was the government counsel, Surratt got off on the plea of limitations. He undertook to lecture and began at Rockville, Maryland. The Evening Star of Washington reported the lecture, which was widely copied and was of such a feeble character that it killed him as a lecturer he went to baltimore where it is said he still lives spangler the scene shifter who was an accomplice of booth was sent to the dry tortugas served out his term and died about ten years ago mclaughlin who was arrested because of his acquaintance with the conspirators was sent to the dry tortugas and there died ford's theatre was never played in after that memorable night ten or twelve days after the assassination ford attempted to open it but stanton prevented it 
and the government bought the theater for one hundred thousand dollars and converted it into a medical museum ford was a southern sympathizer he ran two theaters until four years ago one in washington and one in baltimore allison naylor the liveryman who let booth have his horse still lives in washington major rathbone who was in the box with lincoln when he was shot died within the last four years stuart the man who jumped on the stage to follow booth and announced to the audience that he had escaped through the alley died lately strange but very few persons can now be found who were at the theater that night laura keene died a few years ago booth the assassin was the third son of the eminent english tragedian junius brutus booth and the brother of the equally renowned edwin booth he was only twenty-six years old when he figured as the chief actor in this horrible drama he began his dramatic career as john wilkes and as a stock actor gained a fair reputation but had not achieved any special success he had played chiefly in the south and west and but a few times in new york some time before the assassination of lincoln he had abandoned his profession on account of a bronchial affection for those who knew him and saw him on that fatal friday say that he was restless like one who consciously or unconsciously was overshadowed by some awful fate he knew that the president and his party intended to be present at ford theatres in the evening and he asked an acquaintance if he should attend the performance remarking that if he did he would see some unusually fine acting he was a handsome man his eyes were large and dark his hair dark and inclined to curl his features finely molded his form tall and his address pleasing frederick stone counsel for harold after booth's death is authority for the statement that the occasion for lincoln's assassination was the sentiment expressed by the president in a speech delivered from the steps of the white house on the night of april eleventh when he said if universal amnesty is granted to the insurgents i cannot see how i can avoid exacting in return universal suffrage or at least suffrage on the basis of intelligence and military service booth was standing before mr lincoln on the outskirts of the crowd that means nigger citizenship he said to harold by his side now by god i'll put him through but whatever may have been the incentive booth seemed to crave the reprehensible fame that attaches to a bold and dramatically wicked deed he may it is true have been mentally unhinged but whether sane or senseless he made for himself an infamous and endless notoriety when he murdered the patient forbearing man who had directed our ship of state through the most tempestuous waters it ever encountered in the death of lincoln the south prostrate and bleeding lost a friend and his unholy taking off at the very hour of the assured supremacy of the union cause ran the iron into the heart of the north his son went down suddenly and whelmed the country in a darkness which was felt by every heart but far up the clouds sprang apart and soon the golden light flooding the heavens with radiance illuminated every uncovered brow with the hope of a fair tomorrow his name will ever be watchword of liberty his work is finished and sealed forever with the veneration given to the blood of martyrs yesterday a man reviled and abused a target for the shafts of malice and hatred today an apostle yesterday a power today a prestige sacred irresistible the life and the tragic death of mr lincoln mark an epoch in history 
from which dates the unqualified enunciation by the american people of the greatest truth in the bible of republicanism the very keystone of that arch of human rights which is destined to overshadow and remodel every government upon the earth the glorious brightness of that upper world as it welcomed his faint and bleeding spirit broke through upon the earth at his exit it was the dawn of a day growing brighter as the grand army of freedom follows in the march of time lincoln's place in history will be fixed aside from his personal characteristics by the events and results of the war as a great political leader who quelled a rebellion of eight millions of people liberated four millions of slaves and demonstrated to the world the ability of the people to maintain a government of themselves by themselves for themselves he will assuredly occupy no insignificant place to accomplish the great work of preserving the union cost the land a great price generations of americans yet unborn and humanity everywhere for years to come will mourn the horrors and sacrifices of the first civil war in the united states but above the blood of its victims above the bones of its dead above the ashes of desolate hearths will arise the colossal figure of abraham lincoln as the most acceptable sacrifice offered by the nineteenth century in expiation of the great crime of the seventeenth above all the anguish and tears of that immense hecticomb will appear the shade of lincoln as the symbol of hope and of pardon this is the true lesson of lincoln's life real and enduring greatness that will survive the corrosion and abrasion of time of change and of progress must rest upon character in certain brilliant and what is understood to be most desirable endowments how many americans have surpassed him yet how he looms above them all not eloquence nor logic nor grasp of thought not statesmanship nor power of command nor courage not any nor all of these have made him what he is but these in the degree in which he possessed them conjoined to those qualities comprised in the term character have given him his fame have made him for all time to come the great american the grand central figure in american perhaps the world's history end of section thirty two recording by don bracci chicago illinois www.voicedon.com